Welcome to Salt Lime Storytime, the podcast where we tell you stories with telling over drinks. I'm Jess Nani, joined today by my whimsical co-host, Allison Hillman. Thank you. Hi, is Allison. that is that reused? Did you do that recently? Did I already do whimsical? I was so excited about sure. whimsical. It felt it, it sounds... felt very surprised. Okay. Wait. Let me do, let me, no, let no, me no. I think you, maybe you didn't. I'm just trying to remember what you did the last few days. Anyway, I'll take whimsical. I will absolutely take whimsical. Thank you, Jess. There's only like a million words. I I'm gonna bound. I'm gonna be bound to repeat one once in a while. <laughs> it's okay. I I understand. It's all right. Hi Jess. Oh. Hi Allison. How's your week? Good. Um, I brought your microphone to you and forgot to bring you the cord. So you have your microphone and you still have to use your old shitty one. And I'm sorry. So it's okay. You were so nice for bringing me my microphone. Uh huh. Um, if only I remember to give you the cord as well because it's useless without it. Anyway, mm-hmm. I also bought a new microphone because I noticed the sound quality on my mic was really slipping the last few episodes. So I hope this sounds better. It really does. Then once you have your mic- microphone back, it'll be just a- off to the races. Off to the races, indeed. So thank you for bearing with us, everybody. Anyway, how are you, Jess? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it is a Tuesday. It's been a lovely rainy day here in Salt Lake. So I ran in the rain for a little bit today after work, Fun. which was lovely. And it's just really feeling like summer. I swam a lot this weekend. So that was nice. It looks like you got some sun yourself. Just on my left shoulder, uh, we had one of my mom's friends came over today and we were sitting in like the chairs in the backyard and my left side was facing and in the sun so anyway it's fine don't you love that i love yeah i do i'm gonna look like one of those like three flavored ice creams where you got the strawberries chocolate mm-hmm. and vanilla except it'll just be strawberry and vanilla you know that sounds great to me honestly delicious indeed oh also my strawberries you didn't ask my strawberry plants are doing amazing they are already <gasps> blooming and i'm so excited I'm so happy to hear that. How are your raspberries? Um, they are taking much longer to really uh, get established. They haven't started blooming anything, but they're not dead yet. So I'm counting that as a win. Okay. And your peach tree? Also very slow growing. She's still deciding if she wants to be established or not. But mm-hmm. I do think she mm-hmm. is starting to grow little branches. Like, I am seeing some movement, but it's like a tree. So it's like, how fast does it actually grow? Yeah. Anyway. Very excited. I talked to my grandmother, who has had several peach trees in her time in their backyard in Cedar City, and I told her all about your garden, and I mentioned that you had planted a peach tree, and she was like, oh, that's so exciting. She won't see anything from it for two years. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm fully expecting that. Like, in the raspberry bushes, too, we won't see anything for a year or two. So it's definitely in the long haul. That's why I'm so excited about the strawberries, because, like, they're starting to put off flowers, which means they're about... Anyway, nobody cares. Um... I care. That's me. That's I, I thank you. I appreciate you. And I will be done with my EMT program by the end of this week. The finals. Oh my gosh, on Friday. that's so exciting. <gasps> Your mm-hmm. finals on Friday? Well, one of them. The final for the class is on Friday, but then the national register final is we still have to register for that anyway. I gotcha. When are you gonna do that? Unclear. We haven't registered yet. Mm. Okay. Anyway, well, keep us posted. Good luck on Friday. Excited to hear how it goes. And uh, I hesitate to ask any ghost story updates. 
I don't think so. Nothing new. I, I told you about the giggling girl, right? No. Did I mention the giggling girl? Okay. You might have. I don't think, I think so. I that doesn't rush past it. Um, well, there's a a giggling little girl that runs around among the fire trucks at station 71 where I was last. And and I, I hate do it. We, I, I truly hate that. So do we think that it's the same girl or girls that giggle at the bluebird? You know, I honestly want to say yes, because that means there's less child ghosts in the world and they just commute from building to building to scare people. There's a tunnel. Uh, there's a tunnel system. Oh my God. Don't even get me started. But yeah, there was a huge drug bust that happened in Logan uh, this last week. And one of the calls we went on was a woman who watched somebody in her family get arrested and she had a panic attack, which is so sad. <gasps> anyway, but... That's the thing. I know all the tea in the town because of this job, and it's the gossip in me is just thrilled. So, Ugh. I'm like not jealous because I would be a terrible EMT, but <laughs> no, you wouldn't. You'd be so very here's good at okay. Caring. Here's what I think. This is the thing that the thing that is like frustrating for me is that I am deeply calm in emergency situations, like. I am the person you want to get in a car crash with. Everybody that I've mm -hmm. ever been in a car crash with can corroborate this. I am so level-headed. I will get the car off the road. I will call 911. I will be so calm and collected. If you're in shock, I know how to treat shock. I hate bodily fluids with a fiery <laughs> passion. And I hate bad smells. So while I would be really good in a crisis and I'd be like... Sorry, Austin I just thought of something. Actively gagging. I, I just thought of something. Please continue. I'm not great with bodily I, fluids either. Uh, clearly, it, it's just something you deal with. Nobody's nobody I likes them. Just can't. I will. I will work from home and type my emails and deal with Teams calls. Okay. Um, even if it sucks my soul out, <laughs> it's fine. We're fine in the corporate world. Did I almost quit my job to become a store manager of my overpriced gym? Yes. You would have been so good at that. It's fine. We're fine. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, happy surprise week, Allison. This week we're doing surprise episodes because neither Allison or I could think of a good theme. <laughs> Perfect. And I do enjoy doing a surprise episode every now and then because... Kind of like my story, I have one that doesn't really fit in a great category, So, yeah. but it's a great story. Same. So, and I know that you're very excited to tell me about yes. yours, and I would love to hear what it is. All right, let's dive in. To tell you all, to set the scene, I am drinking a rum-based cocktail with some raspberry lemonade in it. It's fine. It's what I have. We're dog-sitting this week, so I don't really have anything in my house, so my cocktail is really lame. Um, anyway, I feel like there's something about a surprise episode that just, like, really gets me going. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I told Brendan what I was going to tell you today over dinner last night, and <laughs> I was telling you how I was pretty sure you wouldn't know about, um, know about what I was about to tell you, and he legitimately said, this is a direct quote. I wrote it down. He said, Allison is a better person for not knowing this story. Are you sure you want to tell her? <laughs> Oh my goodness, I cannot wait. That is a direct quote. So with that said, 
Allison. Have you ever heard of Caroline Calloway? The name does not ring a bell. Amazing. I was so hoping you would say no. I actually thought about doing Caroline for my Scammers episode, but I thought that Anna Sorkin just, she just did a little bit better. She just had a little bit more finesse. So I don't know. But since then, her story has been itching at me. So I will be telling you about the biggest online friendship breakup that any millennial has ever had. It is the millennial influencer scandal to rule them all. I won't give you much by way of introduction, but Natalie Beach, who will play a major role in our story, once referred to Caroline's creative endeavors as a, quote, one woman fire fest. Okay. We are (laughs) connecting the dots here. We are. We are. So with that said, my sources are primarily a cut article titled The Story of Caroline Calloway and Her Ghostwriter Natalie by Natalie Beach. Obviously, a Wikipedia article titled Caroline Calloway, a New York Times article titled Who is Caroline Calloway, a Michigan Daily article called A Comprehensive History of Caroline Calloway, and the Daily Dot Caroline Calloway response to former friends viral essays with a series of Instagram posts, as well as I was obsessed with the story when it happened. So there was some general knowledge that came from a menagerie of podcasts that I listened to at the time that I don't remember what those podcasts are. But thank you to those podcasters who I listened to. I'm fairly certain there was a cut podcast I listened to on it that was a podcast version of this story. But anyway, let's get into it. Caroline Calloway was born Caroline Calloway Gottschall on December 5th, 1991, in a small Virginia town. At 17, with a dream in her heart and delusion in her soul, she changed her name to Caroline Calloway because, quote, it would look better on books, end quote. But her first last name, I'm sorry, made a better pun, like, Caroline, gotcha, you know, if, if she's like a scammer, right? She was not thinking. Anyway. In 2010, Caroline found herself in a creative writing class at NYU. Natalie Beach, a fellow sophomore and creative writing student, found herself in the same class. Now, Allison, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of taking a creative writing class, but typically in a nonfiction creative writing class, such as this one, you are in a pretty small, they cap the class at about 15 people. It's very intimate. And you basically spend the entire semester writing about your trauma And it immediately becomes clear who's actually had real trauma and who's there because they think they can write, but they actually can't. I say this as someone who spent a lot of time in in creative writing classes. So there was probably, you know, describing the scene, there was probably, you know, several non-traditional students in the class just really writing about their, their childhood trauma that has come to light with them having children there was probably several rich girls caroline being one of them writing about how their dads didn't love them enough and then there were Mm. the scholarship kids because again this is at nyu writing about their experiences growing up poor so just like that that sets the scene a little bit so caroline was instantly enamored with natalie who was a fellow student in this class natalie who grew up poor and was there by the skin of her teeth was instantly drawn to Caroline's vivacious and overly confident self. 
she found herself completely drawn into Caroline's orbit, despite their, like, deep differences. The two began to hang out socially, and Natalie found herself sucked into a world of clubs, partying, and doing her best to keep up with Caroline's unceasing energy. Natalie wrote of her early friendship with Caroline, saying, quote, I described her as someone you couldn't count on to remember a birthday, but the one I'd call if I needed a black market kidney, end quote. Which, oh, hell yeah. Honestly, slay. (laughs) Honestly, get it. (laughs) Honestly, we all need a black market kidney friend. (laughs) Who amongst us? Natalie would repeatedly catch Caroline lying about mundane things like jewelry being stolen only for her to wear the missing rings the next week. She shrugged it off and continued to build their friendship, helping Caroline out with her personal essays and various schoolwork, simply because Caroline praised Natalie's work so enthusiastically when she did. Fast forward a year and a country or two, and the two friends found themselves in Sicily after a study abroad. It's the early 2010s, and Instagram is still blossoming as a platform for self-expression. Caroline Calloway suddenly found herself Instagram famous after a picture of hers ended up on the Explore page. 50,000 teen girls flocked to her account, wanting to live vicariously through her. And I need to, like, just really quickly, the follower numbers I'm going to mention throughout this story, I need everybody to just remember that Instagram had been around for a very short amount of time at this point. So 50,000 followers at that time in the early 2010s was a huge deal. Kylie Jenner didn't hit a million, I think, until 2016 around there. So, like, keep that Damn. keep that in mind. You cannot compare the follower counts to, of today to the follower counts of then. Okay? Okay. So, Caroline finds herself with a lot of followers. And they are predominantly teen girls wanting to live vicariously through her. Caroline is quoted saying, that's what the brand is about. It doesn't matter where you live or how much money you have. You could be a teen from Nebraska and by following me, you can feel like you're here, end quote. Caroline's feed quickly became a sanctuary for dreamers with her enchanting captions and whimsical photos. But behind the scenes, Natalie was becoming the unwilling content creator. After getting stranded with no money in Italy, she had to rely on Caroline's goodwill to get her home. She spent the rest of the summer helping manage Caroline's ever-increasing fame to help work off the $800 she owed her. During this time, Natalie was living in, I mean, we have all know the horror stories of the New York City rental whatever. Natalie, oh, yeah. Natalie's roommate had not paid rent in months. Natalie was a newly graduated student had no money, and she came home one day, and her roommate's bunny had died in the middle of the floor. Just keeled over dead. Great. Great. (laughs) So, knowing that Caroline was out of town for a couple of months doing whatever it is that Instagram influencers did in the early 2010s, she asked Caroline if she could sublet her apartment for the summer. Caroline agreed and was like, this is a great idea. The week before Natalie was supposed to move in, Caroline called to let her know that her parents were having financial difficulties. She was going to have to rent her apartment out on Airbnb for the rest of the summer to help offset her rental costs that her parents were still covering for her, even though she was in her mid-20s at this point. Sure, sure. Natalie, with no idea what she was going to do, made it clear to her friend how shitty of a situation she put her in caroline in return said what if i paid you 200 dollars a week 
to come and clean my apartment and flip it over for new renters. And Natalie, again, with no other option, was like, fuck it, we ball. I'll come clean your apartment that I was supposed to live in for $200 a week. The very, very first time Natalie went over to prepare for the first renters, she walked in and Caroline had bags of trash all over the house. She had used dirty laundry littering the floors and it was just an absolute pigsty. I'm going to send you a picture of Caroline's apartment. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Just as an example. And then I'll also send you an Instagram post that Caroline has posted of her own apartment. So you can kind of see what she's what she's working with. Oh, ew. Cute cat, though. So is that Caroline? Yes, that's Caroline. Do you love okay. how in the Instagram posts, the post specifically, she just has like three bags of trash in the background? <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't even notice. That's yes. so funny. Yeah. Yes. So. Yeah, that's pretty awful. Natalie calls Caroline very reasonably and is like, hey, this is more than I bargained for. I want to help you out, but like I can't be your maid. I need you to find somebody else. Caroline's response was, quote, it's just you're the only one of my friends who needs the money badly enough to take the job, end quote. Oh, that's so nice. Wow. I just I just really love Caroline. Wow. I just... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. meanwhile through all of this please keep in mind caroline is becoming an, an influencer of note on instagram she's sharing pictures of her travels she is sharing her lavish lifestyle and natalie is forced to look at all of this as she's like cleaning up caroline's trash okay just keep that in the back of your head natalie again refuses to continue to be Caroline's maid, and she's forced to move back in with her parents while Caroline continued to gain fame using the platform Natalie had built for her. While the two stayed in casual contacts, their emails, which, like, also that is the most millennial friendship thing you could ever do, is that you're contacting each other primarily through email. Cringe. But also, I kind of love it. <laughs> anyway, their emails Truly. and their calls grew further and further in between. In 2015, a few years after graduating, Caroline started making headlines again. With her diaristic Instagram captions continuing to gain traction and a whopping 90,000 followers, again, crazy how, like, just like that is nothing now. Like, you got a million views on a TikTok once and you're just, like, chilling, you know? Like, that's just crazy how much brain rot there is compared to, like, I mean, 2.9, but who's counting? oh thank you you're so good at tiktok <laughs> anyway. um, listen it's luck of the algorithm but i appreciate you it really is honestly it's just kind of like fuck it we ball on the algorithm um mm -hmm. anyway caroline had been offered natalie's dream a book deal Natalie reached out and offered what we'll call an olive branch or maybe a request to write on coattails, depending on who you asked. She offered Caroline her help. So Caroline ghosted Natalie's multiple emails being like, hey, like saw that you had this big, exciting thing happen. Let me know if you need any help. Hey, would love to bounce ideas off of you if you need somebody to be a creative partner. Hey, would love to catch up next time in New York. Caroline ignored her emails for about three months until September of that year. 
it was the week before Caroline was supposed to present her book proposal to her editor. She called Natalie for the first time in months in a frantic, asking for any help that Natalie could give her. Natalie, being the simpy side character in Caroline's orbit, dropped everything and immediately went to Caroline's apartment to begin helping her. They stayed up all night using Adderall that they bought from a doctor on the... <laughs> They describe in the in one of the essays, they describe going and getting this Adderall. <laughs> and the Natalie describes it as we went to a corner of a park in New York City to get it from a doctor. And the mm. only people around the doctor were young blonde women in Lululemon leggings and homeless men getting stuff from him. Which just we love Oh my god. We love the class the classism there. It's, there's a lot to unpack there. Anyway. Oh, there sure is. Uh, wow. yeah sorry yeah it's a bleak image i'm not surprised yeah it's a bleak image so they stay up all night just trying to get through as much of this book proposal as they can about 100 pages at some point during the night caroline asks natalie to come on and be her editor full-time they negotiate while they're just like stoned out of their minds that natalie will get 35 percent of whatever caroline makes off of the book at this time natalie is still living at home or it's kind of a little bit unclear she's either living at home or she was living with roommates in new york again at in another just shitty new york apartment and she was working a landscaping job for like barely above minimum wage so this is huge for natalie so in between god i hope she got it in writing i just hope she got it oh in no, no, writing, no 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 she, she did not didn't. get it in writing i know she did she very clearly did not get it god, in writing so I she know. stays up all night and they still in the morning they still they look at what they've written it's unusable it is the gibberish of people on too much adderall and too much weed they miss the deadline, but Natalie is like, I am in on this fucking project. Like, I have been writing Caroline's Instagram posts from the moment that she got big on Instagram. Like, I have been helping her come up with content even back when we were in school and I was helping her write her essays. Like, I know how to write and pretend to be Carolyn. So they take about two months. They create this really lovely proposal and they send it to the editor who had pitched the book deal. The editor responds in an email, quote, the talent you show in this proposal, both in writing and the photos from the entire story, is this rare, remarkable thing, end quote. Hmm. Natalie is given zero credit in this effort. Uh. Caroline takes credit for it all. Caroline decides that we were that to call the book and we were like, and it's basically, just to give you like a quick concept, it's basically a YA book that fictionalizes caroline's life a little bit through instagram posts and is basically her adventures in new york city a little bit like sex in the city carrie bradshaw the publishers Flatiron books buy the rights to the story for three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, of which natalie is supposed to get 35 percent. and i should have done this math i didn't but that's a decent chunk of money when you are working minimum wage at a landscaping company and your dream is to be three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. yes sorry Allison, be my producer. Tell me, tell me what that percentage. Thirty-five percent of three hundred seventy-five k. One hundred thirty-one thousand two hundred fifty dollars. So, 
this is also money this is life-changing money and this is also the advance at the end when the book was published caroline was supposed to get over five hundred thousand dollars so this is money that could help natalie take a year off and write her own book let natalie go back to school let natalie not be working minimum wage at a landscaping company basically however we're dealing with somebody who is a chronic liar, as we know, mm-hmm. and who's living in a delusional lifestyle of an early influencer. Caroline absolutely freaks out and over the course of the next several months proceeds to completely crumble mentally. She misses deadline after deadline, no matter how much Natalie helps her. And there's an excerpt from Natalie's essay about this that's that I'll just read to you to kind of give you a, a good idea of where she was at. Quote, when I walked into Caroline's room in Cambridge, I saw a trash can full of daffodils besides a trash can full of Prosecco corks. She had ripped up the wall-to-wall carpet and shoved the squares into her closet because she had always wanted exposed wood floors, but you couldn't even step out of bed without getting splinters. But Caroline's problems weren't just my problems. They were my whole world. And so while I was a supporting character in her book, I cast myself as the hero in her life. I reached out to Cambridge about therapy, spoke to her mom about her prescription pill use. When she wore the same lace gown for two and a half days, even sleeping in it, I forced her into the shower. When she arranged a loose pile of sleeping pills on her nightstand before bed, I swept them into my palm when she wasn't looking. I pulled open her desk drawer to find a pen and empty Adderall capsules skittered around like cockroaches exposed to the light. The manuscript was due in six months, and my notes were just lists of funny British foods, scotch eggs, juicy bits. I began to worry. End quote. Yeah. God. I think this is what a thing. toxic friend. Not, not her, but like, Caroline. I think the thing that's hard about this story and why I find it so fascinating is like, obviously, there are two sides to every story. Mm-hmm. Most of what I got is, and most of what the internet knows, is Natalie's side of the story caroline will get into this a little bit later but it's like very clear that caroline is an ill person but she's also like wealthy and like living a privileged lifestyle and from natalie's perspective squandering something that she would really really love to have so natalie confronts her about this basically is like we have to write your manuscript i am depending on your manuscript for literally my 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 golden ticket out of landscaping working odd jobs writing to just trying to get noticed by anybody and then caroline comes out with her real story of fame caroline breaks down and says to natalie i didn't get instagram famous by accident apparently caroline had gone to literary agents because as we'll remember caroline has wanted to be a famous author since she was 17 enough so that she changed her name to be so She had gone to literary agents and asked them what it would take to get a memoir. And they told her, no one's going to give you a memoir if you don't have any fame to back it up with. She saw Instagram and took it as her opportunity to become this famous person that she could publish a memoir about her life. She bought the majority of her Instagram followers Mm. and the post that she posted that went viral was actually a paid ad and this was prior to when there were like extensive laws around like around social media ads making it clear that it was an ad like this was pre those days so she could get away with basically promoting a post to get all of these followers 
So her entire book deal is based on a lie, is what Natalie has now figured out. Holy shit. Do you love how the story is oh just like basically God. me telling you two friends gossip? <laughs> oh, it's the best. Jess, I... My favorite type of story. Also, Instagram, because I've known people who have bought Instagram followers and I've never, they've never told me, I've never talked to them about it, but seeing their followers jump from 300 to... 800 in a day and it's Mm -hmm. i don't know it's Mm -hmm. really bizarre that need to appear to be popular yes well and the thing here is like it's she's literally like how can i buy my way into getting a memoir this girl at this point is in her mid-20s she's like 24 to 26 while this is sort of happening and she literally is like I want to write a memoir so bad that I am going to just like create this fake persona and this fake backstory to all of my friends and like use it to and like it worked it fucking worked but like Natalie is sitting there you know a couple of years removed from this like fuck 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 who have I tied my horse to so Natalie is like, I, oh I'm going to do what I did in college. I'm going to continue to basically run Caroline's life. She writes a fourth of the novel by herself and sends it to Caroline. And Caroline is like, absolutely not. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. And there's absolutely no progress. They go to Amsterdam together. And this is just like a side story that is just like awful. The two go to Amsterdam with, uh, it's Natalie, Caroline, and Caroline's at the time boyfriend. And they go out and they're, you know, having a night on the town. And Natalie starts flirting with a bartender who, like, is very clearly much more interested in Caroline. Caroline leaves to go meet her boyfriend. And Natalie is like, I'm going to stay and shoot my shot with this bartender. I'll meet you back later, basically. Natalie tries to shoot her shot with a bartender. According to her, the bartender was a dick and was basically like, my apartment's too far away. We can fuck in the bathroom if you want. And she's like, "Mm, that feels really, really bad. And tries to go, she like tries to get back to the Airbnb. And when she gets there, it's locked and she can't get in. She calls Caroline repeatedly, knocks on the door, like cannot get Caroline to answer. And she is locked out. So Natalie spends the entire night wandering around Amsterdam trying to find a warm place to be until Caroline wakes up and lets her in in the morning. And she, like, in her essay, she talks about, like, getting harassed by all of these men and, like, being on a train and these, like, like different tourists, like, these, like, male tourists that were out um, bar hopping, like, what, not leaving her alone and just being, like, absolutely terrified. She gets back to their Airbnb the next day. And Caroline's like, oh, I just thought you went home with the bartender. So I, like, didn't bother answering my phone. And, like... Oh, my God. Yeah. off. Well, and it's that thing of, like, Caroline's just, like, not thinking. Like, she's literally just not thinking. And there's this whole... There's this whole thing. I don't get into it. But there's this whole thing where Natalie, like, contrasts her sex life with Caroline's like dating life basically because when they meet Natalie is still a virgin it's a whole thing I didn't feel the need to get into it but like there's all these stories that Natalie tells throughout her essay about this experience of men basically treating her like an object and like wanting to get to Carolyn basically 
and it was just like this was the culmination of like the pivotal example of caroline just like not giving a shit about natalie no matter how much natalie does for her or natalie tries to make her life better so after they return do you from think Anna, that oh so sorry do you no, think that carolyn knew that she was banging on the door and like purposely ignoring her or do you think that she was actually asleep my guess is that caroline was like on drugs like it's clear that at this point in time that caroline is like actively having a drug issue and so my guess is that she had knocked herself out with several sleeping pills and wasn't hearing natalie but it's also like shitty of natalie like not being able to get back in you know so it's kind of that thing of like it's clear that caroline's a sick person but like it put natalie in danger so yeah Yeah. i've had to break into an airbnb before because of the people that went home before us got so shit-faced they passed out and could not hear us knocking and thank god it was a cheap airbnb and not the greatest part of town so i was able to open the window with my hands and then we crawled in and i was like this is very dangerous (laughs) i'm glad it's us but yeah anyway lucky for us that we could get in because they we tried for 20 minutes to get their attention texting calling banging on the door they were so drunk they anyway see and that's so shitty like like well and i think this is the other thing on like this is just like a compounding snowball like you're natalie you're on you're in amsterdam pretty much on caroline's dime and you're trying to help her live out this life dream that will also help you and she's just repeatedly throwing it back in your face and throwing your help back in your face so it's just frustrating shitty Anyway, after returning from Amsterdam, Natalie moved to L.A. and tried to get space from Caroline. She continued to help, though, across the country with putting off Caroline's editors and writing more of the manuscript just to keep them at bay. It was becoming increasingly clear that Caroline, despite her beautific Instagram world and poetic captions, was not cut out to write a book. She publicly began to count down the days until she missed her finally due date on instagram in a wildly honest but ill-advised social media campaign so we'll say this for (laughs) caroline she is like aware and posts it like again it's so she like did a full countdown being like in this many days i'll miss my book deadline and oh my god it's just ridiculous (laughs) so finally in early 2017 that's pretty funny (laughs) she uh flat iron books dropped the book deal and demanded $100,000 of the advance back, and Caroline began to scramble trying to get the money together. She announced to her fans that the book was not coming, and they were absolutely devastated, and it was a mix of people being like, we hope that you're okay, we hope that everything's gonna be all right, and fans being like, this is ridiculous, like, you can't keep your word. Either way, she just kept posting through it all and trying to basically just smooth it over by continuing to post her lavish lifestyle and and providing these sort of dreamy, creative, diarific posts. So after all of this, Natalie is basically like, well, what the fuck was all this work for the last couple of years for? And Natalie and she, never saw a penny, right? Natalie like, never, never saw a penny. Natalie, okay. to, Even- the, to the best of my knowledge, never saw a penny. Did she um, never confront Caroline? Because after the book was accepted, like, she, Natalie could, should have known that, like, oh, she just got, like, a $300,000 deal and I'm supposed to get 35% mm-hmm. of that. 
like at the very beginning yeah. shouldn't she have known that i'm not victim blaming i'm just like very curious about what her mindset was on this so this is the interesting thing and you are falling into the same conundrum that the people that watched this unfold on the internet in 2018 brendan and i included are dealt with is natalie really the good guy of the story and we'll get into that in a little bit we don't know if natalie ever got paid she does not make it clear in her essay if she ever made money off of Carolyn. We don't know. But hmm. they finally got into a huge fight and it was clear that they could not continue. So Natalie threw in the towel. In late 2017, she announced that she was going to publish a very excellent gossipy essay titled The Story of Caroline Calloway and Her Ghostwriter Natalie. Ooh. Caroline was notified because... It was published in The Cut, which is a offshoot of the New York magazine, which has fact checkers. So Caroline was reached out to for comment prior to this essay's publishing. Natalie herself emailed Caroline to let her know it was happening. And Caroline began to post in the week before the essay went up. I'm going to read her Insta- one of her Instagram posts directly to you. Oh my god, please. Caroline wrote, Do you guys have any friendships that have ended that still bring you pain? This afternoon, I found out that one of the two people I have hurt most in this world will be publishing an essay about our friendship for the cut. I don't know when this essay will go live, but it will be different than the articles that called me a scammer for clickbait. Everything in Natalie's article will be brilliant and beautifully expressed and true. I know this not because I have read her essay, but because Natalie is the best writer I know. I still love her. Our friendship ended two years ago, but I still walk around New York sometimes listening to music, running errands, thinking about her. Amsterdam. I'll let her tell you about that trip because it put her in danger, not me. So maybe it's hers to tell. Maybe she has custody of that story. Sometimes I all but gag with guilt. Sometimes I write emails her to her in my head. Sometimes I imagine a future where we're friends again. Natalie suffered all the quences of being loved by an addict and none of the benefits of being loved by the woman that recovery made me into. In early August, Natalie liked one of my Instagram photos by accident. I knew it was an accident because I know Natalie, but still... I thought, maybe she is checking in on me because she still wants to be friends. Maybe she still loves me too. I realize now that she must have been working on the article about us that will be published soon by New York Magazine. My team asked two things of me, to ignore this essay in my post so I don't drive traffic to it, and to give them Natalie's email so they could reach out. This is the first time I've disobeyed them. You should read Natalie's article when it comes out. I'll post a link when it does. Go leave a comment on nymag.com, even if it's insulting me. Every digital impression will be another reason for the cut to hire Natalie again and to pay her even more the next time. And the cut doesn't have access to the audience most interested in hating and loving Caroline Calloway. I do. So start anticipating this article. Get excited. Read it. I hope I can support Natalie now in ways I never did during my addiction. End quote. Um. As you can imagine, when the article went live, the internet absolutely exploded. I, There's two sides to the argument. Wow. Who is to actually blame? Natalie yeah. for repeatedly allowing herself to be used and putting herself repeatedly in the whims of someone that she knew was an active addict. Or was she genuinely a friend trying to help Caroline out and was Carolyn emotionally abusing Natalie? I, okay... Okay, this is really I am actually really in the middle right now. Okay. 
Jess, I know that's why you picked this. Yeah. Do you see why Brendan said I'm a better that you are a better knowing. person for not knowing about the story? Because both of these He's people right. are awful. The, at the end of the day, both of these people suck. Do you think that her post, that Caroline's post about you guys should read it, whatever, do you think that was in a way, did, did she get anything from that? Like, was that to promote herself in any way to save herself? Like, what was- I think so. What could she have gained from that? I, so after the article went live, so that post was posted about a week before the article went live. After the article went live, Caroline posted a series of notes apps, app messages, basically refuting some of the claims or acknowledging some of the claims and basically being like, Natalie rode my coattails because she couldn't figure out how to become a good art like a good famous author by herself and what I think is really interesting is Caroline genuinely does think that Natalie is a great writer and that's clear but she thinks that Natalie like that she had this whole post about how Natalie is the most insecure person that she's ever met and she was obsessed with her because Natalie like was hoping to be as beautiful as her so there's like a lot of like weird turnarounds she basically attempts to paint a picture of herself as a misunderstood artist who's also a drug addict and a mentally ill person who was doing the best she could while Natalie was her friend while also being like Natalie's kind of like a leechy bitch (laughs) okay Natalie has used this to launch herself into becoming a successful opinion piece writer, basically. So this absolutely worked out okay for Natalie. Like it sucked at the time, but Natalie is now a very well-known journalistic author. Hmm. Since then, Hmm. as I'm sure you are very Hmm. curious, since then, Caroline Calloway has continued to post on Instagram. She is still an Instagram influencer. She has attempted to publish the book that her and Natalie originally wrote that was then returned to her by Flatiron on Etsy. And it wasn't the actual book. It was Natalie's notes on the book. (laughs) She had in 2018, about a year after all of this happened, she tried to launch what she referred to as a creativity workshop all around the country. Her original announcement indicated that the workshop would offer tutorials on building an Instagram brand, developing ideas, and addressing, quote, the emotional and spiritual dimensions of making art, end quote. The workshops were an utter failure because Caroline failed to book any venues for them before selling tickets, even though she sold out a bunch of tickets. She never booked venues for it. So she only ended up hosting two of them and refunded the rest of the tickets, and There's a very famous Instagram post that I could not find, which makes me think it's taken down at this point, of her posting in her apartment that I already sent you pictures of, 1,200 mason jars that were going to be used in the workshop, basically with her pleading for her East Coast ticket holders to just come to New York and do it in New York because she had a venue in New York. Uh, Then, in 2020, when she had free time, like the rest of us, she started teasing that she was going to release her response to Natalie's essay in a three-part essay book called Scammer. The book was supposed to come out in 2020. It has been delayed for multiple reasons that Caroline keeps coming up with. It is supposed to be released this month, (gasps) three years after she originally started teasing it. So if she does release it, I will let you guys know. Finally, like all good C-list influencers on Instagram, 
she made an OnlyFans in 2022. Oh, great. And claimed that Playboy had helped her get into the adult entertainment industry and that she had a cover spread coming with them in the coming months. Playboy refuted the claims and said, we have never done, we have never agreed on anything, any such thing with Caroline Calloway. Girl. And that is the absolutely most asinine friendship breakup story to come out of a New York liberal arts college for your (laughs) listening pleasure. There is no happy ending other than Natalie got a little bit better writing credentials and Caroline is doing, let me, okay, I should have made this list. So the kind of OnlyFans that she does is cosplay OnlyFans, but like with Disney, so she does Beauty and the Beast, Harry Potter, and like other Disney princesses. So do you feel like you're the worst person for knowing this gossip story? I feel more confused. I I feel more conflicted. Um, I don't know, I definitely don't feel like I'm a better person for knowing this story. <laughs> Who do you side with, Natalie I- or Caroline? <laughs> Unclear, because the whole time you're telling me about Natalie, I was thinking about that one woman who's taken advantage of by that con artist you told me about, Anna. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i was thinking about her and so i kind of had because like i side with in anna's story i side with that woman completely yes you know but so i was kind of like had them in the same boat mm-hmm. so it's hard for me i'm not sure okay because i again i i don't think they're great i really don't think either of them are great no not not one bit i'm going to now send you a picture of the two of them together if that's okay <laughs> Oh my god, um, I want nothing because more. Because I feel like, I will say, Caroline in the subsequent years has posted some rather anti-Semitic things about Natalie that I uh, keeps me from being anywhere near on Caroline's side because I just, you know, we don't do we don't we don't deal with anti-Semitism in this house, but. Um, it is the classic case of a blonde, beautiful friend and an insecure brunette. And I think because I am a brunette from a lower income household that doesn't act like this, I have a hard time having patience for Natalie. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, if it, it's, it, it sounds like it was a toxic friendship. And after not getting paid, I would have hoped that Natalie bounced, but... Yeah, I'm, I wasn't in her situation. I think that's the thing that's really hard is like Natalie deserves to get her bag from selling the story. Like if she truly didn't get any money from Caroline over the course of how much work she did for her, like sell your story, get your bag. Like that's what you deserve. But I do think that there are a lot of elements to the story that were like, I, I think it takes away from Carolyn's illness in a way. I've read some I read some thought pieces on this um back when it first happened and there was a lot of stuff about how Natalie makes it clear in her article that she could tell that Caroline needed help and instead of getting her or like instead of I mean she tried to get her that help but it also was like knowing when it was time to take a step back 
and Natalie mm. kept pushing the book. And like I get why this is like it's the victim blaming thing. Like I get why I get why Natalie tried to do what she tried to do because she, it was a life-changing amount of money for her. But also Caroline was clearly like a very sick person. So, I don't know. The Amsterdam thing is shitty. Like Natalie was genuinely yeah. in danger. Like that is not yeah, that was not good. Shitty. I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, there's not a great resolution to the story. <laughs> it's just I'm really curious to see or slash hear when that when her story comes out this month, potentially. I will I will see if I can rip it from the internet. Well I'll let you know my thoughts. Okay. I agree. I appreciate you. Wow. Wow. That was a good piece of gossip. Wow. Thank you, Jess. You're welcome. Do you need a drink break? Um, can I be really honest about something? Yeah. So I had a glass of wine, not even a full glass of wine, during your story, and I I drank it on empty stomach, and I got, like, drunk. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm going to make myself some mac and cheese so I can get through my story. (laughs) I feel so dumb. (laughs) It was, like, not even a full glass, and I was like, whoa. So anyway, um. Please do. Okay. Um, I appreciate your patience during these unprecedented times. <laughs> okay, are we ready to get back into this now that yep. you are satiated? Yep, I, I feel much better, Jess. Thank you for letting me pause for 15 minutes to make myself mac and cheese. I'm still tipsy, more tipsy than I would like to be telling this story. So we're just going <laughs> to... We're just going to see how that goes, everybody. Anyway. Hi, Jess. Hi, Allison. Welcome back. Thank you. (laughs) I want to start off by saying that today's story is the result of an entire Sunday spent in a massive rabbit hole I found on the internet. Um, Like, all of Sunday. I'm going to tell you about a concept that I've been obsessing over. Like, obsessing over since I was a kid. And... I don't I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm I'm obsessed with twins. Yes. Specifically twin telepathy. Yes. What are you about to tell me? <laughs> Surprise. Okay. There's one story in particular that I that I'm going to tell you about, but I simply would not be able to sleep tonight if I didn't tell you about some of the really cool examples I found on the internet. Okay. Shout out BuzzFeed for like half of these. Okay, so because I already know that this is a potential to be a classically long Allison story, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dive in right now. Okay, please. So first off, there is no concrete scientific proof that t- that 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 twin telepathy exists. However, <laughs> you shut the hell up. <laughs> you shut up right now. I believe in you. You can do it. Take deep However, that doesn't mean that there aren't numerous separate occurrences from all over the world that prove otherwise. So in other words, it's fucking real. Science just doesn't know why. And just here are some examples. Thank God. In March 2009, 15-year-old Gemma Hewton was suddenly struck with the strong feeling that her twin sister Leanne was in trouble. She grew dizzy, something that always happened when her epileptic twin had a seizure. Gemma hurried to the bathroom, 
where she knew Leanne was taking a bath and found her sister submerged, unconscious, and turning blue. Leanna had suffered a seizure in the bathtub. Are you kidding me? Gemma pulled her sister from the tub, administered CPR, and revived her. Gemma later said, quote, I got this sudden feeling to check on her. It was like a voice telling me, your sister needs you. End quote. Paramedics <laughs> said that had Gemma not ran in when she did, Leanne would have died. fucking kidding me <laughs> i absolutely am not for those of you listening at home my jaw is starting to hurt because i have had to pick it up off the floor so many times in the last 38 seconds jess you are in for the ride of your life i must say you you get hold of that jaw girl because it's gonna fly away from you in the next little bit if you don't so i found another similar story online um, it was about one twin who, when they were younger, would suffer seizures in her sleep, but her twin sister would always know right before they happened. So she, her twin would basically wake up with this weird tunnel vision and the lights would start fading in and out and she knew that her sister was about to have a seizure. So she'd basically see her sister's aura for her. So her twin would then run to get the parents and they would always be by her twin's side when her, the seizures began. Without fail, she could predict. Okay, so tomorrow I am going to go to my super, super smart neuroscientist co-workers and I am going to ask them how okay. twin telepathy with epilepsy, because epilepsy is something that my company like kind of does some stuff with. I'm going to ask them about this and I okay. cannot wait to hear them be like, I don't know. I don't know why I would do that. And then get yeah. really frustrated that they don't have an answer. Right. And it's not just like epilepsy. Like I, in the next couple, like it, it's like everything. Like there are stories of one twin rolled their ankle and then the twin across the house, their ankle started to swell. It's a thing and it's unexplainable. And so, for instance, for this story, this is a quick story of adult twins miles apart experiencing this kind of twin telepathy. One was in the shower when she felt intense chest pain. Minutes later, she got a call that her twin sister was in the hospital with severe heart problems and was about to die. The healthy twin said she could literally feel the life leaving her body as her sister passed away. Question, are all of these <laughs> identical twins or are they just like no. a menagerie? Okay, so uh, one article or scientific article that I kind of read about uh, twin telepathy says that it's like one in five identical twins experience it and then one in 10 fraternal twins experience it so for the first story like uh Gemma the one who saved her sister from drowning in the tub they're fraternal twins they're not identical and Interesting. it doesn't have to be identical but it's more common and so this next story is about 70 year old identical twin brothers dying two hours apart in identical ways in the first accident, one of the brothers was riding his bicycle on an icy road in Finland when he was hit and killed by a truck. Two hours later, the second brother was riding on the same road and was hit and killed by the same kind of truck. And what makes this accident even more freaky is that the authorities hadn't yet informed the second brother about the first one's accident. Are you... 
Are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> look that art, look that article up online, sister. Absolutely, I'm not. <laughs> like that shit's real. Like how is that not real? You know? Oh my gosh. Okay, so in one study, two identical twin brothers, Richard and Damian Powell's, were put in separate rooms. One was hooked up to a polygraph machine as the other plunged his hands into a bucket of ice water. The twin hooked up to the machine gasped at the exact same time his brother did in the other room. Okay. Okay. I think this is worse than child ghosts. <laughs> Dude, twins are freaky, but I I always I wanted a twin so bad like i always wanted a twin mm-hmm. and i mean in hindsight i probably would have been upset because i like attention and i probably wouldn't have liked if she had it anyway but i've always wanted a twin because they have this freaky connection yeah okay and one of the most famous examples i don't know if you've heard of them the erickson twins in ireland all right so this is a quick synopsis of that it's fucking insane so for reasons unknown in 2008 the 41-year-old twin suffered a shared psychosis. After acting suspiciously on a bus, they were kicked off and the driver called the police. The sisters ran onto a busy highway where they were both struck by vehicles, but then they just got up like nothing happened. Obviously, the police were called, and when the police and paramedics arrived, they were just talking to the sisters on the side of the highway. Completely, They were completely calm, like it was a normal conversation. When... Out of nowhere, one sister, Ursula, just bolted into oncoming traffic and was hit by a truck traveling 56 miles an hour. Oh my gosh. Following immediately behind her was her twin, Sabina, who was struck by a car going the same speed. Both were alive but suffered multiple broken bones. However, when Sabina regained consciousness after 15 minutes, she got up and, for the third time that day, jumped into oncoming traffic, going the other direction. Regardless of the police's attempts to stop her, because they tried, it took at least four officers to restrain and sedate her because she was exhibiting superhuman strength. So, they were both transported to the hospital, and Sabina was released after only a couple hours, but her sister Ursula was far more injured and required a lot more treatment because she was hit by a fucking truck going 56 miles an hour on the interstate. Anyway, so that same day, Sabina wandered the streets looking for her sister when a concerned man approached her and asked if she needed help. So long story short, he invited her inside his home where she stabbed him multiple times and killed him. (gasps) Sabina fled the scene with a hammer that she used to strike herself in the head with multiple times. As the police chased her, she leapt from a 40-foot bridge and broke both of her ankles. Sabina's lawyers claimed that Sabina was a secondary sufferer of folly adieu, a shared psychosis, with her sister Ursula, who was the primary sufferer. So basically, like, Ursula's presence or perceived presence would essentially influence Sabina to act erratically. And this whole folly adieu thing has, there's only, like, a couple examples of that in history. But it's basically, like, if me and you were both convinced that your cat spoke English, like, that is kind of what this is. Like, we are both 100, we, we would bet our lives on it. 
that's what this is. And it's usually family members or like people that are really close, like husband and wife or wife and wife, whatever, married couples that experience it or identical twins. So Sabina was imprisoned for five years and released in 2011. She was she wasn't in prison for longer because it was obviously like a mental health thing. And so or else like she would have gotten in a lot more trouble. Ursula was eventually released from the hospital and moved back to the United States. The twins weren't on any drugs or alcohol during these incidents, and scientists are still baffled as to what happened that day. Also, I want to say that the entire running into traffic incident was caught by a camera crew shadowing the police that day, and you can watch it on YouTube. What? (laughs) It's fucking insane, Jess. It's crazy. I know that we're, like, talking about twin telepathy, and, like, this is a separate conversation, what the literal fuck did you just tell me? <laughs> right? I know. It's like the fact that it was like a share, like shared psychosis is so fascinating. Like the fact that they both ran into oncoming traffic, like there's no question. It is, it's like, I, I don't know. It, it just, it's crazy. Okay. So now finally, Jess, onto the story that we have all been waiting for today. I'm going to tell you about the Silent Twins. Do you know about the Silent Twins? No, I don't know anything yes. about this. Yes, the only yes. cool twin story I know is the one that, or I guess it's not really cool. It's very like deeply sad. Is the twin that got in a motorcycle accident and like lost his memory, and his other twin <gasps> basically like oh gaslit God. him over like trying to protect him from like their terrible abusive childhood. Yeah, into forgetting their childhood trauma. Insane movie. Oh my yes. God. You and I have talked about that movie multiple times at length. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, I, I think it might still be on Netflix. Do you remember what it's called? Mm, I can't I remember don't. what it's called. Tell Me Who I Am. Yes. Tell Me Who I Am. If you've not watched that film, that film is truly like a jaw-dropping. It, nothing like it. There's nothing like no. it. No. Please watch it. Anyway. Okay, The Silent okay. Twins. I'm so scared. <laughs> uh, you Honestly? Honestly, you kind of should be. So, (laughs) the silent twins, June and Jennifer Gibbons, were born on April 11th, 1963, at a British military hospital in Yemen, where their father was stationed. The identical twin sisters were the daughters of two Caribbean immigrants from Barbados. At first, the girls appeared to be normal, happy babies, but when they hit speaking age, their parents noticed something was off. They talked to each other in their own made-up, unintelligible language with slurred speech and odd chattering. They also became completely inseparable. When the girls started school, their speech problems became more apparent and their secret language eventually developed into another kind. Silence. To the outside world, the girls appeared to read each other's minds. They would walk in unison, eat in unison, moving as if sharing one mind. The family moved to Wales in the early 1970s and were the only black family in their town. As the girls attended school there, their reliance on each other only grew because of the relentless bullying they experienced. June and Jennifer were constantly tormented, targeted for their dark skin, foreign accents, and textured hair. They were called racial slurs and spat on by others. 
And also being like identical twins on top of that only added a level of mystery that made other kids uncomfortable. It's so fucked up. Um, So their bullying was so bad that the teachers let them leave school five minutes early every day to get a head start walking home. Oh, my God. Yeah. By nine years old, the twins stopped talking to other people completely. And as I go more into this story, this story is often the way I've heard it told is often told in kind of an almost like paranormal way. Like it's it gets almost Mm -hmm. like a spooky story and it absolutely can be presented that way. But I think one of the main reasons for their behavior is because of the racism and the isolation they experienced their entire lives Mm -hmm. and so I think that that's just something to be very aware of where I was like why wouldn't they withdraw from society if Mm -hmm. they were being relentlessly bullied so yeah seriously so by nine years old the twins stopped talking to other people completely in fact they created their own game of sorts a game that spanned decades and only isolated them more and more from their family and the outside world as long as they were being watched they wouldn't move and if they had to move they would do so in unison as one person if they were walking on the sidewalk and the person in front of them turned around to look at them they would stop walking at the same time until the person turned around and kept going then as one heads bowed and faces expressionless they would lift the same foot and begin again until they felt another set of eyes staring they were so committed to this mirroring of each other that during horseback riding lessons if one sister fell off her horse the other would immediately fall off too oh my gosh i like yeah wow that makes me like kind of ill (laughs) i know like i feel so bad for them but at the same time is that not the scariest thing you've ever heard in your entire life that is a wee bit terrifying i'm not gonna deny it again child Mm -hmm. ghosts twins telepathizing i don't know which was worse i mean literally like why do you think that in the movie the shining they picked two little twin girls as like the ghosts haunting the hallway Mm -hmm. like because they Mm -hmm. are the creepiest scariest people on the planet anyway in walking in unison and talking in unison (sighs) but not even like talking but everything like i mean they would take off their coats in unison they would sip tea in unison when they were sitting at the cafeteria table they would take slow bites in unison like it they were like people who watched them were saying it's incredible the like how committed they were to it the fact that like they weren't even necessarily looking at each other but they would move at the exact same time at the exact same speed in the exact same way and anyway it's it's just really crazy so in 1976 when the girls were 13 A doctor came to their school to give everyone tuberculosis vaccinations. The doctor, John Reese, remembers... This is his words, not mine, just so everybody knows. Okay. He remembers a parade of white arms and then, suddenly, a black one. He was shocked that, unlike every other child he vaccinated that day, Jennifer and June had no reaction to the shot. They had no concerns or questions. They didn't cry or whine. They stood before him in a trance-like, nearly lifeless state. 
Reese was so disturbed by their behavior that he asked the headmaster about them. But because the girls weren't actually troublemakers, like they didn't do anything, which meant meant that they didn't actually like cause problems. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because being creepy is not, you know. <laughs> anyway, so the headmaster paid them no mind because they weren't troublemakers. Okay, and can I ask just like a really quick question? Uh-huh. So they didn't talk at all. Um, to each other, they did. Their parents would okay. hear them chattering, and they that's what kind of how they call it, like, up in their room. Yeah. And they would kind of talk to other people, like, their parents, but they didn't talk to anybody in school. And there okay. were a couple kids that were like, I would have been their friend, but I just, they wouldn't talk to, like, I would go up and talk to them, and they they wouldn't talk to back to me. Like, it was impossible to try to be friends with them for that reason. Interesting. And so in public, they would basically communicate through a series of microscopic eye signals and movements that I kind of bring up in a little bit. But it was like this entire language that it it is. I mean, it's again, it's like this twin telepathy thing. Like it's it's so hard to explain. So anyway, because they didn't cause trouble, the headmaster did not care about them. The only thing faculty cared about when it came to, quote unquote, colored students was their behavior because that was like the only expected them to act out. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the doctor was still bothered enough to refer the girls to a psychiatrist. Thank goodness. But he quickly referred them to a speech therapist since they just would not talk to him. So this is where we start to first understand what's going on in their heads. The speech therapist was named Anne Traharn. And they began working with her in February of 1977. They would never speak to her directly. However, they did agree to read out loud when she left the room. And she would record these sessions and then later she would listen back to them. And (laughs) Jess, you're going to hate this. So by slowing down the tapes, Dr. Traharn discovered that their secret unintelligible language was actually a mixture of Barbadian slang and English spoken very, very quickly. I, with all sympathy and respect to (laughs) the absolutely horrendous bullying I'm sure they experienced as the only two black children in their school, that is the scariest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah. The overly Mm -hmm. quick talking thing is so upsetting is so upsetting uh-huh quick enough that other people can't pick up on it mm-hmm. that makes me want to vomit <laughs> i know and the thing is uh, on top of all of that of like speaking in a mixture of slang from barbados and english very quickly yeah. they also had a speech impediment where for the s sound they would say shh so, like, I'm going swimming, or I like catch and dogs. Like, every the S's would make shh noises. It honestly sounds like if I don't know if you've ever heard like a deaf person talk, but it's really yes. similar in kind of how they yeah. pronounce syllables. And so, I don't know how this goddess of a woman figured all of this out by slowing it down, but she did. So, Dr. Traheron also noticed that one twin, Jennifer seemed to have power over her sister, June. The doctor sensed that June wanted to speak, but was stopped by eye movements from Jennifer, who appeared to be controlling her actions. Traheron later said that Jennifer, quote, 
sat there with an expressionless gaze, but I felt her power. The thought entered my mind that June was possessed by her twin. End quote. A colleague of hers even called Jennifer evil. Oh my June gosh. later summarized, I know, yeah. June later summarized the dynamic with her sister as, quote, one day she'd wake up and be me, and one day I would wake up and be her. And we used to say to each other, give me back myself. If you give me back myself, I'll give you back yourself. All right. Good for them. Good for and them. They're poor, they're poor parents during this time, may I just say, because their mom and dad, like, they were like, they'll grow out of it. You know, like, <laughs> they'll grow out of this weird thing of, like, they'll learn how to speak normally. There's no way they could be teenagers and be doing this, you know? Yeah. But you said it lasted decades. <gasps> so, actually, not only does it last decades, but it gets worse. And Jennifer, what are you doing? The parents have a total of five children, including the twins. Mm-hmm. So the twins have an older sister and an older brother. And then it's them. And then they have a younger sister, Rosie. And I'll talk a little bit about them, but. I didn't put this in here because this was already so fucking long, but they also came from a very traditional like Barbados culture where it's like the woman takes care of the family and the man works and that's his job. So like when the dad, his name was Aubrey, when the dad came home, he would just kind of sit in front of the TV and wait for dinner to be served to him. Like he wasn't very present in their lives, not because he didn't love them, but because it just wasn't part of their culture. So Mm -hmm. the mom, Gloria, Mm -hmm. busted ass every, anyway, I love her, that poor woman. (laughs) Gloria's like, what have I birthed? (laughs) No, Gloria's like, can I put them back? I, I, anyway, (laughs) so It was clear that the twins needed to become their own individuals, and they just hoped that it wasn't too late. They were, again, they were 13 at this time. So in the past, separating twins who relied too much on one another had occasionally proved useful in getting them to break out of their shells. However, this was just simply not the case with Jennifer and June. After being sent to separate boarding schools, they became catatonic. For example... It took two people to get June out of bed in the morning because she was, quote, stiff and heavy as a corpse. Oh. All they could do was prop her up against a wall. These girls are doing a lot. They're doing a lot with this telepathy thing. I mean, uh, that's a lot to unpack. (laughs) This whole story. Um, June would sit in classes, lifeless, expressionless, as tears streamed endlessly down her face. Teachers and students started carrying tissues with them to wipe her face for her because she just wouldn't move and do it herself. The, the twins were soon reunited. I, I think that that goes yeah. without saying. This did not last yeah. very long. Uh, so they were like, we tactically did integrate them and socialize them amongst other students, but nothing happened. Nothing. Did like, not it, go well. It, they did not change. In fact, the separation proved to make the twins even more withdrawn from society. They no longer spoke to their parents or siblings, except through writing letters to their mom. So it was that, like, the only people they would spoke to were occasionally their mother and siblings and their father. But now they didn't speak to anybody except for writing letters to their parents. 
Their silence was so loud that it ruined family dinners and often drove their older sister, Greta, to tears. In 1978, Jennifer and June attended Greta's wedding, but sat completely silently in the corner, not saying anything or partaking in the festivities. They were then essentially banned from attending family events after that, and because just Greta was just so frustrated by them. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get it. Greta, set your boundaries. <laughs> Greta, makes sense. And this kind of happens a little bit later, but I didn't fucking okay, say with me. I didn't put this in here, but Greta eventually does have a baby. Um, she has a daughter, and she goes up to the twins room and is like do you guys want to hold her and in their heads they wanted so desperately to but they didn't and then that was like the last one of the last times like she was just like i'm fucking done with you guys like i think that was her last attempt to put out feelers to have a relationship with her sisters but when they completely ignored her and didn't want to have anything to do with her daughter there she was just like i can't do this anymore so i know By 1979, at the age of 16, the twins no longer attended school and they just stayed in their room all day, every day, writing novels, poems, and plays. So, much like the characters of your story, we also have some writers over here. Some aspiring authors. Drama queens. Mm Mm-hmm. All of them. So, the (laughs) twins... Truly. The twins ate all their meals in their room. And if there was a show they wanted to watch, they'd instruct their mom, Gloria, to move the TV and leave the living room door open so they could watch it from upstairs. Like, they did not leave their room. The only person that they spoke to verbally besides each other was their younger sister, Rosie, and that's just because she shared a room with them. And so she would play with them sometimes. So the twins, June in particular noticed the effect that their silence had on their family. In her diary, she wrote, quote, I worry about my mother. I see grief for all those years in her eyes. She is not young, but she is romantic, a child at heart. End quote. Their older brother, yeah. Their older brother and sister had moved away and they rarely visited. Their father was withdrawn and had lost hope that his daughters would grow out of this behavior. They knew they had driven a wedge into the family and desperately wanted to make it right. June said, quote, We had a ritual. We'd kneel down by the bed and ask God to forgive our sins. We'd open the Bible and start chanting from it and pray like mad. We'd pray to him not to let us hurt our family by ignoring them, to give us strength to talk to our mother, our father. But we couldn't do it. Hard it was. Too hard. I am sure you're going to get to this, but I just need to understand what mental illness this is. Honestly, okay. I don't have as many answers for you as you'd like. That's okay. I'll live. Uh, Okay. (laughs) But so they were like trapped in a world of their own making. Like they hated it there. They didn't want to be the Silent Twins, but they could not escape that reality. Oh my God. So using dolls, the girls created other families and stories unlike their own. They dreamt of becoming authors and wrote short stories and books. They even registered for a small mail-order creative writing class. Many of their stories had dark and worrisome overtones, as you might guess. June began writing a novel called The Pepsi-Cola Addict, 
which detailed a teenager who was seduced by his school teacher and started committing crime. He drank 300 cans of Pepsi-Cola every day and eventually died from an overdose of prescription medication. So June sent this story to a publicist and it actually made it to print. Do writers deserve rights? I don't know. <laughs> There's a pun in there. I know there is. Writers deserving rights. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, Jennifer also wrote two novels in just a matter of weeks. Like that's they they were all their time was spent to this. Like their mom said that they would just like she would just hear the typewriter typing throughout the night. So anyway, Jennifer also wrote two novels in a matter of weeks. The, these are to me that these are a bit worse. Um, the pugilist, P-U-G-I-L-I-S-T. Sure. Not it's definitely not pugilist. So I the pugilist. I know <laughs> the pugilist was a story about a boy with a failing heart whose surgeon father implants in him the heart and soul of their family dog. The dog's spirit lives on in the boy and eventually takes revenge on the father. Another story, Discomania, was the story of a local disco where the dancers are driven insane and they just massacre each other. Great. Yeah. The only piece of writing ever to be published was The Pepsi-Cola Addict, though they tried hard to get the other ones. So Jennifer was always jealous of June. Not only was June 10 minutes older, Jennifer thought she was prettier, more clever, and having been the only one to get work published, more successful. Jennifer feared she would be left behind. Later, June would write of Jennifer, quote, She wants us to be equal. There is a murderous gleam in her eye. Dear Lord, I am scared of her. She is not normal. Someone is driving her insane. It is me. End quote. I was not expecting this topic to take take such a scary turn. I should have known. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, again, it still, it only gets worse. So by the age of 18, (laughs) the girls began leaving their room again. And I'm not, it was like over a year and a half that they were, they just, they were just in their room. Like their family didn't see them at all, if maybe barely, but like, anyway, imagine like not seeing your kids for over a year but just knowing they're alive because you hear the typewriter typing you hear them chattering occasionally and then you like find their empty food trays outside their door 30 minutes after you dropped it off like that's how they knew that they were okay that's insane (laughs) their poor mom yeah i know because at this point it's not so much as she's like i mean she's like enabling them but at this point it's way more than that it's not like yeah no psychiatrist in the world would be able to understand what's going on. So anyway, by the age of 18, the girls began leaving their room again in search of love and romance. They bought a pair of binoculars and spied on the boys at the local military base. Two attractive American teenage boys lived on the base with their father, and the girls began obsessing over them. They would steal the oldest cigarettes and write love notes on them for him to find. Eventually, the twins found out where they lived and broke into their family home and physically broke through his bedroom door so that they could be among his stuff and, like, smell his stuff. And then they sat there watching TV and eating snacks until the parents got home and were like, who the fuck are you? Uh, Anyway, 
But they still, they, they started spending their summer with the brothers. They became friends. Friends is a strong word. They started spending their summer with the brothers and they were doing drugs and drinking. They would also sniff glue and lighter fluid. Same. June and Jennifer only spoke if they were under the influence of something. They eventually lost their virginity to one of the brothers and fell madly in love with him, even though he treated them horribly, especially Jennifer. Like, he, like, beat the shit out of her. Oh, my god. He would, gosh. like, take off their wigs and set them on fire. Like, he was awful. But they mistook it for love and romance, you know? Like, they yeah. they, they were obsessed with it. But yeah. by the end of the summer, when the boys thankfully fucking moved back to America... Jennifer and June begged for things of theirs to keep and remember them by. <laughs> I hate this so much. So one gave an old dirty t-shirt and the other gave June his jacket, but only if she paid him for it. What the hell? So they're terrible people. Moving on. And by there, the terrible people, I mean the brothers. Okay. So the resentment for each other grew and grew. June wrote, quote, Jennifer and I are like lovers, a love-hate relationship. She thinks I am weak. She knows not how I fear her. This makes me feel more weak. I want to be strong enough to split from her. Oh, Lord, help me. I am in despair. Jennifer wrote, she should have died at birth. (gasps) Cain killed Abel. No twin should forget that. June wrote, I'm in enslavement to her, this creature who is with me every hour of my living soul. Jennifer wrote, June can't be my real twin. My real twin was born the exact time as me, has my rising sign, my looks, my ways, my dreams, my ambitions. He or she will have my weaknesses, failures, opinions. All this makes a twin. No differences. I can't stand differences. End quote. Okay, Jennifer, honey, you need to calm down. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they both fucking need to calm down, but, like, you see, they hate each other, but they can't live without each other. (sighs) So one day, one day while walking over a bridge, June grabbed Jennifer and pushed her off into the water below. She jumped in after her, started choking her, and tried to drown her. June eventually let go, and they apologized to each other, saying they were sorry and I love you. Sisters fight. You know how it is. (laughs) Girls will be girls. Yeah, just girly things. So the two started directing their distress into a life of crime, mostly to impress the boys and the local gang. Uh, So they would break into random buildings and steal whatever they could get their hands on. But when that became boring, which it quickly did, they were like, what's up, arson? Let's do that. And one night they burned down a tractor store. (laughs) All right. Great. (laughs) On that night, October 24th, 1981, June wrote in her diary, quote, all this week I've wanted to burn down the tractor store in Snowdrop Lane. I burned it down today with the help of Jay, of course. It was the biggest night of my life. We climbed over a barbed wire fence. The sky grew blacker and it started to rain. All the while, my lovely, glorious fire was licking its way through the roof, and the thick smoke filled the night sky. It was a picture which will live in my mind forever. Oh, what a sinful, evil, selfish mind. 
I know the Lord will forgive me. It's been a long, painful, hard year. Don't I deserve to express my distress? And, whoa. Oh, my God. They called the police to alert them of the fire and were obviously very quickly arrested. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. So, yeah. In May of 1982, the twins pled guilty to 16 counts of arson, burglary, and theft. They were sentenced to life at Broadmoor, <gasps> England's maximum security prison for the criminally insane. Okay. And this kind of leads into more of like the racial stigma back then. If it were the two brothers that did this, do you think they would have gotten life at no, a maximum security not. mental health? No. Absolutely not. Like they were treated so badly, almost definitely because of the color of their skin. Yeah. So anyway, at the age of 19, they were the youngest people ever to be sent to Broadmoor. They were diagnosed as schizophrenic, and they were forced to share a cell, forced to be in the presence of the other as they'd always been, but their feelings of hatred for one another only grew. Okay. Okay. This, this is gnarly, this quote here. So June wrote... And again, they are like five feet apart from each other in their shared cell. June wrote, quote, one of us is plotting to kill one of us. A thud on the head on a cool evening, dragging the lifeless body, digging a secret grave. I'm in a dangerous situation, a scheming, insidious plot. How will it end? I'm an enslavement to her. This creature who lounges in this cell, who is with me every hour of my living soul. We have become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We scheme, we plot, and who will win? A deadly day is getting closer each minute, coming to a point of imminent death, like hands creeping up against the night sky. Intentions of evil—sorry, <laughs> intentions of evil, blood, a knife, a mincer. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable. I say to myself, "How can I get rid of my own shadow?" Impossible or not impossible. Without my shadow, would I die? Without my shadow, would I gain life? End quote. So let's dissect that, Jess. Creative writing major. Like, what's up? June, you need to calm down with the flowery murder language happening here. <laughs> mm-hmm. So after being sent to... Yeah, I know. So after being sentenced, Jennifer wrote, Please, God, don't let me suffer as much in my new life as I have here. Let me be bold enough to speak openly. Let me trust the doctors and nurses and no longer be afraid of people. For the past seven months, I have been a soul with no hope. Don't let this disease paralyze me again, destroying my abilities, tying up my tongue like firewood. So their time in prison was, as you can imagine, absolute hell. Yeah. June attempted suicide. Jennifer attacked a nurse. And this is their whole mimicking each other or mirroring each other thing. Oh my gosh, I meant to send you photos. Okay, wait. Oh, I don't know. Do I want to see? <laughs> no, no. It's just a, so this is them as kids. They're pretty cute. Okay. Yeah, they're very cute. But I mean, look which at those one, eyes. Yeah. Which one? The one with her like eyes to the side. Looking a little mischievous. Which one's that? No idea. No idea. 
It's either June or Jennifer. They're identical twins, Jess. I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> it's either June know. or Jennifer. <laughs> yeah, we don't One know. One of the two. Okay. So they didn't give up their mimicking thing. They they this is so weird. They took turns eating the other's meals every day. So Jennifer would eat two meals one day and June wouldn't eat anything. And then the next day, June would eat two meals and Jennifer wouldn't eat anything. Like, they followed that religiously. That's so weird. Even when they weren't allowed to see each other. Regardless of their desire to speak to others, they hardly spoke at all. For the first little bit, June would respond to questions from the nurses with only a smile. And Jennifer would speak, but could not be understood. When the other spoke to someone in the presence of her twin, her twin would lunge at her and they'd start to fight. They were eventually separated into different wards, kept from seeing one another. Okay. Um, this is truly... Okay. Staff noticed that when one twin was reading across the hospital, so was the other. When one twin was pacing in her cell, the other was too. Even wards apart, June and Jennifer mirrored each other's actions perfectly. I I get why people kind of take a bit of a paranormal approach to this <laughs> at first glance. Yeah. That makes me so concerned. Please keep going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In June of 1982... Marjorie Wallace, uh, a reporter for the London Sunday Times, heard the twins' story. She spoke to Gloria and Aubrey, the twins' parents, and they started to trust her. And they allowed her to take with her boxes on boxes and bags on bags of the twins' diaries, poetry, plays, books, and manuscripts. The twins' writing was so small that it took Marjorie hours to read just one page. But she was moved by the imagery and often brought to tears. The silent twins, as they were known, were not so silent after all. They mm. were full of emotion, sadness, longing for romance, and pain. June and Jennifer had an all-encompassing love and hate for their twin. A desperate desire to be separate, yet separation was impossible. Reading through June's diaries, Marjorie found that June felt possessed by her sister, whom she referred to as a dark shadow over her. Meanwhile, Jennifer's diaries revealed that she thought of June and herself as fatal enemies and described her sister as a, quote, a face of misery, deception, and murder. End quote. Even still, Marjorie found nothing in their writing to indicate that the twins were psychopathic. Okay. That's Marjorie's opinion. Interesting. That's my opinion! <laughs> yeah. So Marjorie was desperate to get their side of the story for herself, so she visited them regularly and separately mm -hmm. at first. The twins wouldn't speak to her until she started talking to them about their writing. They were eager to hear her thoughts on their work. For the next several years, Marjorie would visit them and talk to them about their life story. Through these interviews and the diaries Marjorie got her hands on, Marjorie Wallace wrote a book about them called The Silent Twins. And I, I listened to this book on tape. I listened to more than half of it. It is 
fascinating and they go obviously so deeply into yeah all of the events and there's so much more quotes and they have like some of the full like short stories in there of it's it's really good i i think jess i think you'd like it and anybody else okay. you should read it anyway so it's called the silent twins during one interview with the now 29 year old twins okay this is again paranormal i'll give it that um during one interview with the now 29-year-old twins, both of them together in the same room this time, Jennifer said something that chilled Marjorie to the core. I'm going to die. We've decided. And then June nodded in agreement. The twins had many long discussions during their time in the hospital. They agreed that as long as they both lived, they couldn't lead a normal life. Therefore, one of them must die to give the other a chance. They agreed that it would be Jennifer. Oh. Okay, now here's a couple photos of the twins and Marjorie. Oh, interesting. Also, I would wear both of those outfits. Yeah. Anyway. What's so interesting is that they look so distinct from each other. Like, you can tell that they're different people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. So, finally, in March of 1993, after almost 12 years in prison, arrangements were made for the almost 30-year-old twins to be transferred to a lower security clinic in Wales. Jess, on the bus ride to the new facility, Jennifer rested her head on June's shoulder and whispered, At long last, we're out. After arriving at the new facility, Jennifer was unresponsive. She was rushed to a hospital and was pronounced dead. The cause of death was a sudden inflammation of the heart, but the reason for this inflammation is still, to this day, a mystery. Are you... Are you fucking (laughs) kidding me? Absolutely not. (laughs) I'm in tears. It's so fucking spooky. <laughs> okay, so Jess just threw her headphones and just pacing around the room. She's standing. Okay, she's coming back <laughs> in denial. All right, Jess, how are we feeling? I... The 60s through the 80s should be banned. Too much weird shit happened then. Please continue. So oh, she died. My God. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, this did happen in March of 1993. But you're right. The, the 70s and 80s should be canceled for the most part. And so the night of her sister's death, that just, I'm sorry. I just, that blows my fucking mind. They predicted her own death. At the age of 29, she just. They literally were like, okay, bye, bitch. And then she's like, all right, yeah. bye. And so her condition is technically known as like myocarditis, I think, which is literally just inflammation of the heart. At her age and at the progression it was, it shouldn't have been fatal. And they they can't even begin to understand why it happened. So, any fucking way. So, that night, June wrote in her diary, quote, Today my beloved twin sister Jennifer died. She is dead. Her heart stopped beating. She will never recognize me. Mom and dad came to see her body. I kissed her stone-colored face. I went hysterical with grief. All right. Jennifer was buried in St. Martin Cemetery 
in Pembrokeshire, Wales. On her grave is inscribed a poem written by June. Quote, we, <laughs> sorry, Jess just closed her eyes and looked away. We once were two. We two made one. We no more two. Through life be one. Rest in peace. Wow. After her, <laughs> after her sister's death, June immediately began speaking to everyone as if she had been doing it her whole life. She still spoke with that speech impediment, like the S's are sh sounding. Mm -hmm. Like she still ha she still doesn't sound one hundred percent right. But she was she, she there are there's a f literal documentary called The Silent Twin that came out in the nineties, and she's interviewed in it, and she just talks about it. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. She's a little hard to understand, and there's not subtitles, which was difficult at times. But I mean, she she seems normal. Like it's so bizarre. So anyway so she was just talking to people like she'd been doing it forever and she interacted with others easily and was soon released from the clinic and sent home she told marjorie how jennifer's death had opened her up and allowed her to be free for the first time she told her how jennifer had to die and how they had decided that once she did it would be june's responsibility to live for the other june got her own apartment not far from her family home she reconnected with her parents and siblings and made some friends for the first time in her life. Her closest friend being, of course, Marjorie Wallace. Oh my gosh. And I'm going to send you a picture of them that was taken, I'm pretty sure it was taken last year. <gasps> okay. Oh my gosh. A 2016 interview with June's sister Greta revealed that the family had been deeply troubled by the girl's incarceration. She blamed Broadmoor for ruining their lives and for neglecting Jennifer's health. Greta had wanted to file a lawsuit against Broadmoor, but her parents, Aubrey and Gloria, refused, saying it would not bring Jennifer back. And again, I, I do have to agree with Greta on this. Like, they were treated very, very poorly, and yeah. a lot of this probably could have been prevented, and they probably wouldn't have been so isolated if not for how horribly they were treated. So, mm -hmm. anyway... Their story has inspired numerous songs, movies, and films, the most recent being a 2022 movie called The Silent Twins, starring Tamara Lawrence, and my wife and the future mother of my children, Letitia Wright. Okay. <laughs> and I also watched that. It's pretty good. And it's based off of the Marjorie's book, The Silent Twins. In, in that movie, they don't go as deeply into, like the twins conflict they have a more wholesome relationship so i don't think it mm -hmm. accurately depicts how much they fucking hated each other but anyway so today june gibbons is 60 years old and remains living in wales near her family she visits jennifer's grave every week when asked why she said quote i was born a twin and i will die a twin that's the way it goes and that's the incredible story of the silent twins jess Wow. I, that was truly one of the most like bone chilling things I've ever heard. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> no. Happy to do it. Uh, Very happy to do it. Do you still wish you were a twin? <laughs> Honestly, yeah, because like, it would still be kind of bitching to have my own language with somebody. I'm not going to lie, but I don't want that kind of twin thing going on. You know what I'm saying? Like you could always make up a language with Kyle. 
Hmm. It sounds like a lot of work. You know, you gotta do that shit before your brain's fully developed. You know what I'm saying? Um, I mean, honestly, like, what's your take on all that? Do you have an opinion on all that? I truly don't know what to think about what I just heard. Like, I mean, they're definitely on the spectrum. Like, they modern day, like, they people think that they're at least definitely autistic or have Asperger's for sure. Like, that would yeah. at least explain the antisocial behavior, all that. Like, there's a lot of like, it's very clear that Jennifer, at the very least, was like deeply mentally ill, and June was kind of pulled into that because she seems normal after the fact like is June mm-hmm. just like living a normal life as far I mean it, there's not much information on her now but yeah as far as we know yeah unfortunately I I don't think she ever got married or had kids uh she never yeah. became an author like she wanted which is too bad but yeah I mean she's living a relatively private like normal life private normal life So I think that's the thing that's, like, really hard about this is, like, it's very clear that these twins had some sort of deep-seated trauma or mental illness that, like, they were not given the resources they needed and, in fact, were put in situations that probably made it worse. But also, it feels like one of them was possessed. Yeah. High key, yes. Like, it feels a little bit paranormal, like it does some of the devil stuff like or like the the like Cain and Abel stuff is just like very I don't know it's very interesting and then like you Mm -hmm. add the element of like they were very much mistreated because of like their racial background and the trauma that probably added on top of it like it's just I don't know but it also is creepy as fucking hell (laughs) <laughs> yes yes it is um i actually didn't put this in here but they actually did do a lot with like voodoo and like especially jennifer i think and also like uh trying to do spells and they were kind of like obsessed with like witchcraft like they were super duper into star signs they were aries by the way i meant to say that but they were super into star signs and very whimsical and into that whole so yeah. my word for you was correct this week. Whimsical. Oh my goodness. Yes, it was. You're correct. Thank you, Jess. Oh uh, my God. But yeah, honestly, if you're interested in learning more, <laughs> I 10 out of 10 would recommend. List- like I Again, listening to it on tape is a delight. I mean, delight's a okay. stream. It's fascinating. And then you can also read it. It's, it's a great I'll book. add it to my to be read. Great. Well, anyway. Anyway. Thanks for listening in, guys. I love a surprise episode. It is just always baffling how much whiplash we're going to give you when you listen to these. So, hope you enjoy. Yeah, no, it's kind of crazy how we go from some uh, Instagram celebrity gossip to whatever the fuck I just told you. We are just so fun. (laughs) I, I think so. I mean... I'd rather do this show with somebody different. It's it's boring if you get too much of the same thing. So Yeah, absolutely. We just absolutely. appeal to all audiences is what it is. We do. We do. Well, okay. thank you all for listening in. We'll see you next week for mm-hmm. another 321 Shots. And uh, Allison, always a pleasure. Okay. I will see you later, Jess. Thank you, everybody. And oh, we don't say this enough, but please rate and review us and um, subscribe yeah. and follow us on Instagram if you don't already. That would be that'd be very great. Thank you so much. And tell your friends. Thanks all. Bye. Bye.